In To Broadway, To Life, Philip Lambert tells us by the time their third show, Tenderloin, closed in 1961, Jerry Bach and Sheldon Harnick had experienced the theater in all its glory and infamy. They had enjoyed stunning successes and endured major disappointments. They had been toasted and roasted. They had written a show based on a completely original and fictitious libretto, a show retelling historical events in a libretto adapted from nonfiction sources, and a show with a libretto adapted from an historically inspired novel. Their musicals all included important love elements, following in the best of Broadway traditions. But the general themes and dramatic contexts of their shows had ranged from boxing to politics to public morality. The decision to make their creative experience broad and diverse, to grow in every direction, was a conscious one. Whenever we finish something, Bach told Max Wilk in 1971, we've always wanted to do an about-face and go somewhere else. To do something, hopefully, that will give us the opportunity to break new ground, to write fresh, or to explore territory we haven't been in before. In the early 1960s, as Bach and Harnick approached what would become the midpoint of their 14 years of collaboration, and the fourth of the seven major musicals they would ultimately write together during that time, their search for unexplored territory took them to a genre that has been explored more than any other in the musical theater. The pure love story. King's College Theater in Wilkesbury tells that story in its production of She Loves Me, this week and next. In the Maffei Theater on the campus, Dave Reynolds, Associate Professor of Theater and Department Chair, directs, and he invited two of the actors, John Barrera and Michael Ecker, to join us in a conversation about returning to the stage after COVID and doing so with She Loves Me. We, I think like many theaters, were, you know, sort of struggling to come up with what would be the best way to still create content and share content without audiences. So our entire last academic year, we did without audiences. So we did our first show. We actually had an original piece that students created called The Year That Wasn't, which talked about their experiences throughout the year 2020. And then we uh, continued our Shakespearean tradition with As You Like It which we actually filmed with a three-camera setup. So that was kind of cool, like learning more of a cinematic sort of aspect of production. And then we closed the year with a two-person musical called The Last Five Years, which we actually live-streamed. So that was all sort of brand new for me and for, I think, a lot of people. So this year, we're back to having live audiences. This is our second show of the year. First show was The Dining Room. And now we're really excited to be continuing our tradition of doing a, a nice, large musical with She Loves Me. What went into your thoughts this season in terms of the balance? What else is coming and how did it all fit in terms of an arc? We have some new acting faculty who are very talented and they're also taking the reins of two of the shows this year. So just sort of thinking through like what the strengths of everybody that was here, you know, and then also trying to have a pretty interesting academic season. So after this, after this fall, we have coming up our Shakespeare this year. It's a, it's a deep cut on the, on the Shakespeare list. It's uh, Time and of Athens. That's being directed by our faculty member, Jamil Powers. 
I was lucky enough to see it up in Stratford and loved it. Knew nothing about it, but but absolutely loved it. And I think a lot of the themes of it will really resonate in a modern society. It's kind of about a, a fabulously rich person in Rome who turns away from society and technology and goes to be a hermit. So it's pretty interesting. And then after that, we're closing with uh, David Ives' All in the Timing, which, if you're familiar, is just sort of six really fun, sort of witty wordplay comedy pieces. So I think the idea was to have a, a nicely balanced sort of comedic, dramatic season Dave, you have the equivalent of a Rolodex full of musicals you can choose. How about zeroing in on She Loves Me? It was funny, actually. I was not super familiar with this play before probably last spring. There's the inevitable parade of students that come to uh, tell me what shows we should do next year. And this was on the list. I I listened to it and I I got a perusal copy of the script and read it and kind of just fell in love with it. I I guess it's lesser known. I, I was surprised how many people know and love it, honestly. It's a, it's a classic Broadway musical with a really strong book. I just wrote my director's notes today, uh, and Ben Brantley in the New York Times talked about the piece being daydreaming of the ordinary, which I thought was kind of great. It's all just sort of regular people who find themselves in this fantastical world of a Broadway musical, but the things that are going on in their lives aren't. It's not King Lear. You know, it's, mm-hmm. uh, it's everybody sort of dealing with uh, everyday, everyday issues. The music and lyrics are by Bach and Harnick, who wrote Fiddler on the Roof. And the book is by Joe Masteroff, who did the book for Cabaret. So it's, uh, it's a pretty nice pedigree of, of people involved in this piece. Tell us where we are, because we're not in New York, New York. We are in a place where I think I can safely say I have never worked on a play set. Uh, it's set in Budapest, Hungary, which is really interesting. And I, you know, I think the reason is this musical is based on a play that was written by a Hungarian playwright and was set in Budapest. And then the characters' names reflect that as well. Scenically, our, our set designer did a wonderful job of really trying to lean into the elegance of the period and making it kind of like a, a modern era sort of time period, you know, curved lines and sort of late art deco. So we wanted to give the feel of it. It's a European city that's sort of embracing its, its, its heritage, but also buying into the modern as well. So who's with you, David? So I have with me Michael Ecker, who's playing Stephen Kodai, and John Barrera, who is playing George Novak. Now, we have a sense, Michael, that Kodai is a trickster of sorts, not totally admirable. No, definitely not. I actually just wrote a little bit for our school publication, our school newspaper, where I was tasked with trying to describe Kodai, which is a feat. But I I described him as being 100% sure of himself, but because he's good at what he does, it's just what he does that gets him in trouble sometimes. He's definitely a 1930s uh, womanizer, for sure. My director's notes said that the word that I used to describe Kodai was, was rake. He's a classic <laughs> rake from a restoration comedy. You know, a, a womanizing, fast-talking person who sort of, like, gets away with things because he's talked so fast that you don't realize what he said kind of thing. What do you know about that sort of thing, Michael? <laughs> <laughs> Great question. You know, not much. Took a deep dive. The onstage chain smoking and, and all of that is quite a departure for me in real life, but was nonetheless fun to jump right into. And how about John? The, the two words we kept throwing around for George were neurotic lover boy. And he's definitely one of those anxious individuals who really falls in love with the intellectual side of people. And I think that's why he falls so deeply in love with Amalia through the letters, even though he doesn't realize this beautiful woman is right next to him. Where are they writing where they don't know each other? Is there some sort of organization set up? What's the mechanism for that? Well, they're both writing through a Lonely Hearts Club, which uh, keeps the, the letters anonymous to each other. But... What I think the play can really speak to in a modern sense is that 
no matter really what you see when you first meet somebody, there's a whole other side of, of somebody that you, you never know. And when you, you really get to know somebody, you might even love them, which is a really great thing that I, I like about the play. And Dave, are we in on this? Is John the only one who doesn't know, who doesn't know, and who does know that they're corresponding with each other? I think it's. I think that's one of the things that that maybe is best about the play is the way that they they deal with that. So it, it changes as the play goes on. So in the beginning, the audience knows more than the characters do. The audience knows that they're they're the ones that are writing to each other. And then as the play progresses, George finds out that it's Amalia before, and then at you know in a certain scene later in Act Two, Amalia is given enough clues to be able to sort of be suspicious that it's George. But we don't find out the the characters don't admit until the finale and it's a it's a beautiful moment on stage do you gum up the works michael does kodai gum up the works or is his story parallel to theirs i would definitely say parallel he's running a pretty tight b plot of his own (laughs) i don't think kodai is so so interested surprisingly for the type of person he is and who he establishes himself to be over the course of the play he doesn't try to meddle too heavily in the george amali affair but then again they're not meddling with each other either for the duration of the play yeah, it's an interesting because someone asked me, you know, who's the villain, and I, I, you know, I guess it's fair to say that it's Kodai, but the conflict does not really directly involve with with the two protagonists much at all. I think Michael's right; it's it's a very solid B plot that Kodai is involved in with uh, one of the other clerks, the receptionist, uh, Alona Ritter, and some of the dastardly backhand things that he's <laughs> doing at the shop. And I haven't read the original play, but I could, th- I think you could see the layers that that play has brought to this musical. And what's this little box that becomes quite a symbol throughout the play? Well, there's a musical box that just plays little music, and Mr. Marichek, the owner of the shop, wants to sell all these musical boxes that George doesn't think will sell at all. And the music box kind of serves as a like the inciting incident for George and Amalia to really clash and have conflict face-to-face when, at, in parallel, we do realize that they're deeply in love with each other through the letters. So the music box kind of plays the symbol of the start of their relationship in person. And it's interesting, too, because George sort of talks about how he doesn't like them in the beginning, right? And, mm. you know, one of the moments that happens right at the end is he sort of says, oh, they're not so bad. I wouldn't mind owning one myself. And so, yeah, I think the, the music box does sort of symbolize their relationship for sure. Now, what about the music itself? We know that that's a dynamite team of Bach and Harnick. What does it sound like? Is there I, I a sound? honestly don't think it. I don't. I don't think if you listen to this and Fiddler side by side, you'd automatically think that they're the same team. They also wrote Tenderloin, which is a wonderful play about the seedy side of New York City, or I think it's San Francisco actually. I don't think it sounds like Fiddler at all. I mean, I'll let you jump in, Michael. You're the you're the aficionado here. <laughs> no, my familiarity with She Loves Me is deeply rooted in the 2016 revival. So uh, Roundabout Theater Company mounted the third revival of She Loves Me back in 2016. And I remember falling in love with the music then because it sounded so familiar. And I think I think that era and those people at the helm of it are, are greatly responsible for that. But I don't think it sounds like their other well-known works. But you will leave the theater definitely tapping your toes, humming the tune, and feeling as though you watched something you've known all your life. Are there musicians who will be with you? Yes, we do have uh, we have live musicians. Uh, our music director is Crystal France, who I've worked with before and I've really enjoyed working with. And then we've got some professional musicians. We've got some students. Uh, we've even got a faculty member thrown in there. That's another aspect of live theater, even, even farther, is having the live music. One of my favorite things about doing shows here at King is that we always really try to have live musicians whenever possible. Um, and I know that's a thing that doesn't always happen because of the cost, frankly. 
But yeah, it, it's great to have a live orchestra that are very, very featured in the design of the show. Uh, yeah, I was just going to jump in and say that the set does feature a passerelle, which is uh, a wraparound extension of our stage in which the pit is in the middle of our playing space as actors. So we have uh, we have the main stage, stage proper, and then a wrapping round portion, which we, we charge down at dramatic moments and such. But the, the pit is well integrated into the storytelling of, of this piece. And that feels right, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, the, the score is sweeping. Uh, I believe, ideally, this production is mounted with a 17-piece orchestra. That's hard down for us spatially and, and for many reasons. But the mighty musicians that we do have do a great job of, of keeping the gigantic nature of the music alive in a much more skilled back numbers of, of a pit. Either one of you pick a song that you think may explain something about your character or something about the story and moving along the story. Is there one that you're particularly noting that I like this song? I think if we're talking about plot progression, I think the most important would be three letters. That's the reveal that George and Amalia would be writing to each other and how much love that they share for each other throughout the, the start of the play. But my personal favorite would definitely be Tonight at Eight to show how nervous and uh, excited George can be to be in love. And Michael? Um, I'm going to go with Kodai's Act 2 number. It's entitled Grand Knowing You. It's, it's his goodbye, and it is as insincere as it is fabulous. <laughs> and I think that, that pretty much sums up Kodai. And costumes, Dave, what are you doing period-wise? Uh, yeah, we have a, a new costume designer, a really wonderful costume designer named Jen Ranieri, who has her MFA from uh, Alabama, and she's nailed it. The costumes are all period-appropriate for the mid-30s. There's also a, a fun sort of Christmas angle to the play that uh, Jen has done a really great job of capturing with some of our ensemble members. So yeah, it's, uh, it should hopefully be uh, you know transporting. So when all is said and done, you each, I'm sure, have done much in advance of doing this particular piece. What do you think you might take away? Well, with such a big show and, and such a, uh, a, lot, a lot of things to juggle, I think the, the biggest thing I learned is how much trust you should have in your, your cast and your, your creative team and your ensemble, because this is by far one of the, the biggest shows that I've worked on that really requires everybody to put their time in and I'm not traditionally a musical guy, so being given this opportunity was a big thing to overcome, and I couldn't be blessed to work with more understanding and helpful co-stars and uh, a creative team that really made me feel comfortable. So I I definitely earned a lot of trust from the show. Michael, a.k.a. Kodai, how about you? Sure. The first thing that comes to mind when uh, the moment you pose that question is actually a discussion we had during notes last night after our run, which was, it was, it was, phrase in a bunch of different ways, but the way Dave put it that really resonated was we, we looked at a chair in the house, a chair where people will be sitting in just two days to, to watch our show. And, and out in the house, it's a chair. But the moment you put it on stage, it becomes something glamorous and, and, and something that becomes our world as actors. And, and being in such a classic piece of theater, such, such, I'll use the word again, glamorous piece, really, really emphasize that for me, uh, the power we have as creatives, as actors on that stage to make a world out of nothing and to live in it for two and a half hours and to invite an entire room of people to live in it with us is something I'll definitely be taking away. Just then, Michael Eckert and John Barrera, they are actors 
with director Dave Reynolds, associate professor of theater and department chair at King's College in Wilkes-Barre, speaking about their production of the musical She Loves Me, Bach and Harnick, Music and Lyrics, book by Joe Masteroff. This weekend and next, shows this evening and tomorrow at 7.30, with a matinee this Sunday the 14th at 2 o'clock, and then again the following Thursday, Friday, and Saturday at 7.30 each evening. The George P. Maffei II Theatre is located on the campus at 133 North River Street in Wilkes-Barre. The Kings players are taking part in Emily's Gracious Gift, collecting new unwrapped toys, and they would be so pleased if you would take along a new unwrapped toy and be part of the gift-giving this season. For information, kings.edu, kings.edu, and for tickets, brown paper tickets. That is She Loves Me, presented by the King's College Theatre Department, directed by Dave Reynolds with our guests, John Barrera and Michael Ecker. And it is this weekend and next, 133 North River Street in Wilkes-Barre. For more information, kings.edu, kings.edu.